Podcast special insert number nine. DM Vince sitting here along with DM Matt. How's it going, everyone? And DM Will. Hey there, everyone. And orcs have pig faces. Oh boy. <laughs> so, so for two takes, we have that saying in now. <laughs> the third take on the show tonight. Uh, first take, we put Will on the spot. He went, What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was bad because I wasn't, I, I remember the post, but I you took me off by surprise. So that's okay, though. That's what happens when you get surprised. That's right. Yeah. We surprised Will. He failed his role. So basically, we're, we're going to be talking about surprise rules tonight, and we're going to be talking about designing your own campaign and the ideas how to start your own campaign. A lot of people were requesting those things. So jumping into the first topic of tonight, of surprise rules, I'm going to look over to Will as our by-the-book little <laughs> elf person in the picture. <laughs> yeah, I'm the elf. That's You're awesome. The graphic. Will is the uh, elf. I'm the wizard. And... DM Nick is the little halfling on the side, I think. And uh, Matt, you're the uh, dwarf. Uh, if only I had the Trask voice. Oh. If only I had. Well, which one is the cleric? Who's the cleric? Nick? Yeah, it'd be Nick, I guess. Nick must be the cleric. Him and his okay. clerics with blunt weapons. That's yeah. it. <laughs> so, ver- per the uh, rule lawyer here, what is our surprise rules? How does it work? Well, uh, according to the DMG, like it says, it's, it's, it's really self-explanatory. And basically what happens is uh, when the party of players encounters a hostile force, surprise has to be indicated. In, in most cases, this is probably going to be surprise. Now, let me tell you when surprise is not a case. When both, when both parties, the, the monsters and the, and the good people, uh, know that they expect each other. So there's going to be no surprise that. In the event when party players... I'm sorry, excuse me, uh, a group of uh, players are, are adventuring in a dungeon, there's a chance they will be surprised. What does surprise mean? Well, basically what happens is if the players are going down a hallway and then down another hallway comes uh, a group of orcs with pig faces ah. and uh, they're not expecting one another, this is when surprise comes into existence. Now, uh, into play, actually. So what happens is uh, both the DM and the players are going to roll a D6. Depending on the roll, it's going to depend on the amount of segments that are lost before the actual round begins. And so just a number of factors that take place, you know, determining, uh, you know, how many segments are lost and and how that affects the uh, the, the round and the dexterity of the, uh, the parties concerned. Right. But and also we need to remember on that D6 roll, surprise only happens usually on a one or a two. So if both sides roll three through six, there is no surprise round. You just go on with combat normally. Right. It's only when one side or both sides roll a one or a two do you even need to use these rules. Exactly. And then I believe you mentioned one time beforehand, depend, and you got to take a lot of consider. DM's got to take uh, surprise rules into consideration with a lot of elements that, that normally don't come into play. For example, like, well, it does come into play. Like, for example, you said the ranger can only be surprised on a one. Yeah. 
And uh, I am certain there were some other races that have some additional uh, options when it comes to surprise. You know which races they were, or was it classes? I know there's a couple um, monster races they surprise people on a one to four, or characters on a one to four. There you go. And I do remember some that, you know, it, it gets a lot worse. But I believe our, our drow, don't they have special rules on being surprised? I might be incorrect on that. Um, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think so currently this time. For some reason, I'm thinking maybe it's just the rangers that have the, the deal with the uh, the surprise. And they can only be surprised on one and six. Am I correct? Yes. So in a case like this, what would you do then? If you had a party with a ranger... Were you going to roll two types of surprise, or will you go with the being the rangers in the party and use just his surprise? I would go two types because you know everybody can be surprised on their own. So. Right. I would I would go two types as well, especially considering the surprise is actual segments; it's not full rounds. Yeah. So at that point, the time frame is just too small. It, it doesn't make sense to actually uh, use a group's uh, surprise roll. I would almost have every character roll surprise separately. So that way some of the party is surprised, some of it isn't, because I think that is the most realistic of the options. You know what? And you're very true about that. And um, I have um, juggled that. You know, it's, it's very rare for me to say that I juggle rules. I play by the book because it's, it definitely they say it's self-explanatory, but it doesn't really explain yeah. in great detail. So I look at this two ways. If there's a ranger in a, in a group with a party with different types of characters and they're walking around with heavy armor and so on and so on, like I said about the cleric and the paladin or a fighter or what have you and everything, I might rule, and I have to be consistent on this, I might rule that since the ranger is with them, with him being within, you know, their presence, that right will not, you know, really help the ranger in being more quiet or more stealthy. However, if he's by himself or he's out there scouting ahead of the party, then I might do, you know, you know, the, the two times rule where is the ranger going to be surprised and will the group be surprised instead of, you know, him being with the party itself and they just get one roll vices the, uh, and I probably would have him surprised on one and two instead of the normal one if he's with the group itself, if you get my drift. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I went ahead and looked up the drow, and they are actually surprised in a one and eight. So they roll wow. a D8 for their surprise rolls. Hmm. And that's the Unearthed Arcana, I believe. Right, which, if you go, uh, that that's actually in Fiend Folio. And if you go by the surprise rules, if that drow rolls an eight for a surprise and you roll a one, they have seven segments to do whatever they want to you. Wow, that's nasty. So, yeah, just having that increased die for the surprise chance is huge. If, if they catch someone surprised and considering all the uh, the 75 percent chance they have of blending in shadows and all the other abilities they have about with hiding, that's going to happen a lot. Wow. That's impressive, though. There is D8. Wow. I mean, it, I mean, it, that's the things that I talk about. But, you know, like the other elements that I was concerned about surprise again, it concerns the distance, the uh, the line of sight noise, actual area. Uh, it covers, let's see, planned or unplanned appearance and, and, and light conditions. I mean, this goes on and goes on in there. So a DM really has to read this and then he has to write it down how he wants to handle surprise, 
on a consistent basis and everything. And just because it's listed there doesn't mean you have to do it every single time you find a monster. That is correct. You're right. A lot of people are like, do I have to do it because it says it there? No, only if it's common sense of surprise. Does it make sense? If the players are on their edge expecting something to be around the corner, when they find something around the corner, they're not surprised. (laughs) That's exactly right. But since you brought up that thing about the one in eight and the one in six... Or now, for a party to be surprised, you said it was two and six. Is that correct? Yes. Two and six, so the Rangers one and six. And I'm certain that there was some racial, there were certain races that didn't have, couldn't be surprised beside the draw, but maybe it's just the draw that I was thinking about. That's interesting. You know, so I'm just, you know, I'm doing all this from memory pretty much now. So now, also, what, what comes with surprise is dexterity bonuses. I don't think uh, they should have dexterity bonuses. Well, I, I guess it depends on what you think of dexterity. If you're thinking of dexterity as reaction time, then absolutely you should get it. If you're thinking of dexterity more along the lines of hand-eye coordination and ability to do backflips, I could see how you could say dex wouldn't matter. But if you if see... You're surprised, you're like shocked. Well, I'm seeing dexterity more as your ability... Uh, the surprise more as your ability to respond to something very quickly. What is your reaction time? The, well, they, that's what it says, yeah. To, to dodge, move, and get out of the way of something. Right, and then that's including, like, if you're sitting at a red light and being able to hit the gas as soon as it turns green. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like in <laughs> in drag racing, they actually, they actually have, like, what's considered the perfect light. It, because if you uh, – and that's, like, I think three-tenths of a second – it would, because that's the quickest a human could actually respond and press the gas pedal when that light turns green and actually have the car cross the line. Anything faster than that means you press the gas when the light was still red. So if you consider Dex in your ability to react to like a light changing, then I could see having that apply to Surprise. Oh, oh yeah, because, I mean, if you take a look at the... St- if you look at the actual stat on the character sheet, it says reaction adjustment. Right. And you'll notice that when you look at the uh, the DMG on that one page, I think it's like page 62 or 63, whichever one it is, it has that, uh, there's a chart in there, and it's the difference between the roles. And that's going to determine the negative and the positive bonus on your reaction adjustment. Now, what you do with that reaction adjustment then is you assign that to the segments that are either lost or gained. So if, you, if the difference is a three and the party is surprised, and that means they'll lose three segments of that round. However, now based on the reaction adjustment issue, now we have to go to each individual character. Well, everyone is surprised in the party. Right now, your base right now is a minus three because you, you, the difference was three in favor of the monsters being, you know, less surprised in the party. Now, if the reaction adjustment is a zero, well, they lose that three segments. But if they're, uh, I'm sorry, let me take that back. Uh, depending on the, the negative, so minus three and minus three, that would be six. You see how that works? Right. Yeah. So if you have a really bad dex and roll poorly, you could lose an entire six segment round. Yes. Which in most cases, I don't think most people have. A, I don't know what the, the uh, currently right now the uh, the reaction adjustment is for negatives. What score do they have to have? Do they get a negative reaction Let's adjustment see. to nine? 
Let's see here. Ten. Let me see here. To the player's handbook. Oh yeah, so it will it, it yeah. will definitely favor characters and monsters with decent or above average dexterity scores. Right. You would to get that negative three. You need to have a three dex. To get wow. a, to get a negative two is a four. Uh, to get a negative one is a five. Six through fifteen is zero. There you go. Sixteen gets you plus one. Seventeen gets you plus two. Eighteen gets you plus three. Since that spread is so wide for the number of zeros, I really have no problem at all benef- giving that little added bonus to the sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen decks. Right. See, that makes the big difference. So, what is the uh, what is the reaction adjustment for an eighteen? Plus three. Plus three. Wow, see, that's even better. That means, Patrick, you're still surprised. However, you just don't lose out on the the initiative round. Right. You, well, depending on what the spread, if you rolled a one and they rolled a six, your plus three still doesn't cover it entirely. That's true. It doesn't because now you got the monsters to take care of and they're going to get the bonuses because of that. And that's exactly right. And you brought it up now because of that. Now, see, now, Vince, this what my question to Vince is, would you allow armor class bonuses if they lose the surprise round? In other words, do they have armor class bonuses for high decks? Uh, They have armor class bonuses. Yes, because armor doesn't is not a Thing that changes except unless it's damage. But would you give them the dex bonus? Dex bonus is what I mean. The dex bonus or the no. the dex bonus. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I would even, depending on how they were carrying their shield, not give them their shield bonus. Exactly. See, that's a big key thing that a lot of DMs don't catch on. You know, because if you know that there's going to be monsters running around, I always ask, I don't know how y'all play, but I, t- I ask my players, okay, one, if y'all are walking around, what are you carrying? And the fighter says, I'm just carrying a sword. That's all I need to know. What are you carrying? I'm carrying a torch or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah, very good. That's stuff That's stuff that, you know, a di- we're talking about first have- edition AD&D. I have given bonuses for people who say, uh, I don't have my shield, but it's on my back. Oh, yeah, that's cool. And, I, and if something attacks from behind, I'll give them the extra bonus because it is protecting their back. And I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yep. But as far as natural dexterity, no. When they, they lose. They're going to lose that. Yeah, they're going to lose that. Like when third edition came with the whole flat-footed thing. And you know what? That's funny because that's exactly what they're doing here with these rules. It's basically saying you're flat-footed. Right. And how we were talking about uh, possible classes that affect surprise, elves. When you have a party of elves and not in metal armor. (laughs) What's wrong, Vince? They move move so silently (laughs) that they will surprise monsters on a one through four. Wow. Unless some, uh, let's see here, unless they do something that will actually confront the monster. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, because it's in the last paragraph in the elf section under the classes. If alone or not in metal armor, or if well in advance 90 feet or more of a party, which does not consist entirely of elves or halflings, an elven character moves so silently, he will surprise monsters 66 and two-thirds of the time. D6, one through four. Now, they said that when he's not with a party by himself? Right. That's, you see, and that's where I always went. That if someone, that's and that's exactly why I brought the ranger. If the ranger's actually with the party, see, and that was my key thing. So on else, it's interesting. Yeah. I, my, 
my my comment about elves is I'm just you know was always sick of elves back in the day because everyone plays <laughs> elves. Why is playing elf? Because they're so cool and they get such good abilities. He said, he said in real life, why would I want to play a human in a game? You're <laughs> <laughs> to everything in the game. That's why. Yep. And oh, halflings so also halflings also get the same surprise bonus as elves. Wow, see there, and that's impressive because I knew that the other races had some pluses to when it comes to surprise. No, it was just funny because when uh, Matt, you said like, yeah, when there's a whole party of elves, you, and, and Vince goes, because <laughs> <laughs> we did that before. My group, one of my groups, they played a whole party of elves just to annoy the crap out of me. When I, damn it, everyone's an elf. I was like, Grr. at least you know it wasn't done? a party of Kenders. <laughs> no, you know what I'd done, Vince? Then I'd have played a damn uh, uh, a dwarf. I like dwarves. But, That's what I've done. If everyone wanted to play elves, okay, I'm playing a dwarf. One dwarf and a party of elves. <laughs> Sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> oh, man. Three elves and a dwarf. That's awesome. I got to see that someday. Why not? Yeah. But now, I know that there was a post on uh, on our site, yes. on the OSR site, yes. that, that the, the concern was, the question came up, dexterity and the monsters. Oh, dexterity for the monsters, you mean, yes. right? What was, yes. What was y'all's take on that? Uh, I don't, Matt, did you have a chance to look at that yet? I haven't had a chance to look at that specific okay. one, but my general thought is they ha- if they have stats, use those stats. If not, do you have a couple ways you can, one, reference other editions, which did give stats to everything to get the stats if you need a hard number, or, or you just play it by ear. If they don't have a 16, 17, or 18... If it wouldn't make sense for them to have that high of a dex or a three, four, five, it doesn't matter. Just common sense. <laughs> if it was a, a common kobold chasing after somebody, do you really think they're going to have a 17 dex? Right. Right. I mean, you're, it's only going to be... I could, I could see if you wanted to make the drow even nastier, giving them a 16, 17, 18 defense or a dex, because that would make sense. But they're already rolling on a one and eight, so they don't need anything more unless you're trying to kill your party. <laughs> and that's the whole point and everything. And, and what the, what it came down to was that the uh, the per- and I'm not you know dogging him out or anything like that. He made a comment on that. Well, they don't have stats in the monster manual, so that means they have no decks. That's not the case. All monsters have stats one way or another. Now, of course, some of them may not have the, the normal stats that you know one would be accustomed to. I mean, for example, like a slime. A slime probably doesn't have a strength, and it probably doesn't have an intelligence or a wisdom. But it will have probably some decks. I don't know. It, it all just depends. But in any case, there, you know, you're going to have to assign pretty much a general dex for all the creatures in that group if you want to do surprise properly. So, and, and, and I guess that the, the comment was, well, the monsters always have the advantage. No, that's not the case. No. That's not the case. Re- I believe it's my game. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, really, it's only on the extreme dexes does it, the dex even matter in surprise. So right. if it's if they don't have a five dex or lower or a 16 or higher, it doesn't matter. Most of your monsters aren't going to fall in those extreme ranges. And if right. they do, there will be a lot in the description of the monster that would make it pretty obvious they probably have a really high dex. 
And that's when, you know, things come in like gauntlets of dexterity or any potion that raises stats up and so on and so on. So again, but in encounters like this, a good DM will already have everything already set in the event that it's surprise. Surprise is really, uh, I'll be honest with you, it's really, really rare in my games, especially with first edition AD&D, unless it's very specific and unless one or the other, whether it's the party players or you know, the party of adventurers or the monsters, know that there's adventurers lurking around is when surprise becomes uh, an issue. If you listen to any of my play-by, uh, play-by-play podcasts I have, you'll see the surprise is very limited. And I will roll for players if they're doing something stupid. Like, for instance, I had a player that was in the middle of a dungeon and he went back down by himself and he was crushing. It was, he was hacking at the wall trying to find the secret door. By himself, he was making a lot of noise, and he was focused on. It. I said, "How much time are you going to take?" And he's like, "Well, I'm going to take as much time as, as you can." And I said, "Are you going to pretty much just focus your whole energy into it?" He said, "Yeah." So you can imagine you're in a dungeon, clanging away, banging this freaking tunnel, and I gave him a ten percent chance to be surprised. So I rolled the percent down, and boom, he was surprised by a monster coming up behind him, going tap, tap, tap. What do you think you're doing in my dungeon? And actually, that 10% chance of being surprised was actually being really generous because normally it's a 33% chance of being surprised. Yeah. I'll adjust it depending on what the situation is. Right. I mean, just try to be fair. but No, that was that was very much fair and everything, and, and that is the whole point. If you're in there making all that crazy noise and everything, guess what? Your chance, that party's chance of surprising monsters becomes practically nil. Right. You're telling everyone that you're there. And they have a better chance of surprising you, actually. Right, especially when you're focused on one specific task, making a lot of noise. You're not necessarily going to hear the footsteps sneaking up behind you. You normally would have if you weren't trying to beat down a door. And also, I do it, I ask the players to a lot. I say, for example, if they were going to jump into the water, you see something shiny in the water, what do you do? If they say, I just plunge into the water and go grab it, obviously, um, that's it. They're going to be surprised. And they go, oh, yeah. I tiptoe into the water, poking around, looking to see if there's anything going to attack me. And they're not going to be surprised. I do common sense surprise, things like that. Right. No, that makes sense. And, I, and that is totally fair and everything. Because if you've got a character that takes a 10-foot pole and is prodding around in there looking for something nasty and dangerous or expecting something dangerous, yes, then surprise is probably almost nil. But just like you said, the moment they jump in, oh, come on. I, you know what? That giant clam is going to grab you by the foot. And guess what? You're drowning. All right. I see is bloop, bloop, bloop. You know, right. bubbles coming up. Yeah, really, I see surprise being more used in the situations where both monsters and players are surprised to determine who gets to react first. When the goblins are walking around down the hallway, then they bump straight into the players that weren't expecting the goblins, and it's like, okay, who gets to go first? That's when I see surprise mostly being used, as opposed to one side surprising the other. If said goblins have set up an ambush, guess what? Unless the players magically spot them, they're going to be surprised because it's an ambush. Yep, that's the whole point right there. Yep, exactly. And just for those out there that know anything, like I said, when you do roll on on the dice and everything, there is a potential for ties. Right. Yeah, I don't, that's lame. I think that's to both parties of surprise sitting there going, duh, for like two rounds. But that's actually kind of realistic. Well, actually, what happens with a tie, when there is a tie, that means basically there is no surprise. Right. That people can still act normally as if it's around. However, neither party will get an AC adjustment 
to their armor during that time. Yeah. Just like you said, yeah. How can both parties be surprised? Well, I guess just like I said, you're both walking down, you all meet, and you're like, I mean, it didn't take but a couple of fractions of a second to realize, oh, those are bad guys. I think we need to attack them. You still lose your dexterity. Now, how do you all handle stuff like with uh, thieves and hiding in shadows? Would surprise apply in that? In that? Thieves and hiding in shadows? Well, yeah, if, if a thief is hiding in shadows, and let's say a party doesn't see the thief hiding in shadows, and the thief attacks the party, would you consider the party automatically uh, surprised? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. yeah. In okay. in that situation, I would almost I would give the thief probably a full just his normal full round to do whatever he wants because he already had it plotted out. He was already prepared to do that as quickly as possible. So I would just give him his full round action. Yeah, there but you go. he doesn't spot him in the in the one in D six secret door chance, and he doesn't fail his role. Then I don't see, you know. Yeah. Too- yep, that's exactly how I roll. That's how you. No roll. Sur- yep, no surprises there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think we surprised enough out of these people tonight. Uh, yeah, but the whole point is just make sure everyone understands. Just because there are no statistics for monsters, yeah. monsters do have stats. That's correct. Every monster has a stat. Whether you assign it or it's listed in the book, it's there. Right. And if you're the type that have to have someone else tell you your stats, there's a reason the 3.0 and 3.5 monster manuals can be useful to a first edition player. No, just go play uh, <laughs> Ultima Online or something. There, There you go. Ultima Online, they give you stats? Yes, they do, actually. Oh, they do? Oh, it's been so long <laughs> since I played that. All I remember is going around chopping a lot of wood. I remember going around robbing the castles. And the king. The last, the I remember trying to get dye so I could dye my clothes. And then, like, I'm just like, I'm like medieval surf. I'm not an adventurer. I never could figure out what the point of the game was. Yeah, the only Ultima that I played was the very first one when it first came out. And that was back, was that in the 70s? No, that was uh, early 80s when uh, Lord Britain put that out. Yeah, exactly. That was when I did it. Yep. The Nintendo one or not the Nintendo one? Oh, no, no, no. no, The the Nintendo one was actually Ultima 4. Yeah, that was... Or no, 3. Ultima Exodus was 3, I believe. This was the one that I played this on the Commodore 64. Oh, okay. Yes, I have one of those. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you can play Ultima Online still to this day. It still works. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, free servers to play it on. Yeah. I oh. still, like you, Matt, you said, I don't know the purpose of the game half the time, but. Yep. And then you can actually, if you want to play the old Ultima games, you can get them from good old games, GOG.com, really cheap. And I think you can actually get uh, Exodus for free. Wow. Um, oh, I will say this, though. I was real glad to see that uh, Vincent posted that uh, that link to that 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 game. What was it? Slid- Slither? Slender? What was it again? Oh, Slenderman game. Yeah, that's a freaky game, man. Yeah. What's it called? Slenderman? It's just called the Slender game. It's it's only a game in beta right now. But, okay. But it's based f- off the Slenderman uh, mythology. Yeah. Have you guys played it at all? I haven't. Oh, my God. I have no clue what it is. All I know, a Slenderman to me is a thin person. Yes, the the Slenderman. It's just creepy. This game. Yeah, you're in a forest. You're supposed to be a kid with a flashlight. You have to find these eight pieces of a notebook, and the whole time the Slenderman is supposedly chasing after you. 
And you, they, what they tell you to do is turn the lights out, put headphones on while you play this game. <laughs> and if you go to the forum, there's a little video of what it looks like, and it's creepy as hell, dude. I'm telling you. There's some videos on YouTube of people playing the game, like jumping out of their chairs and everything. And I tell you, uh, Slender Man, see, uh, the links I can't really do over over here because Matt, you could post them. Yeah, up. I, I've seen the links in the forum, so I can pull those up. If you want to go and put the actual link of the Slender game, it is only a beta game, and it's like in the first stage, and it's creepy as hell. It kind of reminds me, remember when Silent Hill, when it first came yeah. out, with just that flashlight and that radio, and right. whenever something attacked you, that creepy noise came out? Yeah. That kind of reminds mm. me of this. Okay. Yeah, I, I, those games where, you know, you're walking around and you just have a flashlight for your, your light, and everything else is dark, yeah, that, that reminds me when I played that Alien versus Predator game on the Xbox 360, and all you got is that, that flashlight, I'm thinking like, this is, this is, you can't see nothing. Yeah. This you can't see anything, and then like you keep turning around, looking all over the place. You're hearing things. Then you like see like a figure standing there, and you're like, "Oh crap!" and you run. Yeah, yeah. And it's not there anymore, and then right. it shows up out of nowhere. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, Fatal Frame too. Yes. Oh yeah. yeah, I remember that. They did it also with the thing, the computer game, the thing that came out some years, many years ago. Okay. Yeah, I haven't yeah. played that one. Yeah, that's old. That's old. Oh. This is a great game. It's absolutely free to download and play as much as you want. And they encourage people to download and play it. Awesome. Playing it probably over and over again. I don't know what happens when you collect eight the eight pieces of a note, but I guess the game ends, but I don't know. Maybe the Slender Man dies. But you can look up the mythos of the... Matt, you're good with mythos of the Slender Man mythos, right? Uh, I think that's more Jason. Oh, was it Jason more than mythos? Ye- yeah. Yeah, because I haven't hadn't heard of it before we talked about it on the show. Let's look up the Slender Man. Yeah, let me see here. Boom. Actually, so it's, I would highly recommend picking it up and supporting the game if they have like a guide, uh, a Kickstart out or something. I would definitely do it. Yeah, because we talked about the Slender Man back way back in issue thirty-four, and. When we were talking about uh, setting the mood. Oh. Yeah, here. And I got, I'll go ahead and post the uh, link talking about the Slender Man in the show notes from that episode. So in, so in case you missed issue 34, you can reference that. Symptoms of the Slender Man is coming for you. You're coughing up blood. <laughs> the technology messes up. Your memory lost. You have nightmares about him. Drawing, there's a drawing and symbols on the walls with a circle and an X through it. You have diarrhea and you start vomiting. <laughs> That's not very nice. No, it's not. Oh my goodness. He only pretty much goes after children. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about campaigns now, right, Will? Yes, we can talk about those. Campaigns, and you said there was a someone requested uh, how to start up a campaign. Uh, yeah, what happened was there was a post on there asking about you know how does one start up a campaign? How does one create a campaign setting? What kind of tools would you utilize to even consider making a campaign? And uh, and I'm thinking like wow, and I think it was in, in relation to the link like what is your oldest D and D adventure that you ever wrote or you know that you ever came up with and everything to have your players run through, right? 
And, uh, you know, and I just posted, you know, real quick like that, you know, I think the first one that I actually worked on was in 1979. 1978 and 1979, I, you know, I created a campaign called Fall from Grace. And um, at that time when I did it, it was only like seven parts to it. And then from there on, uh, I, I finally completed it in 1989, which was like a year or so after I joined the Marine Corps. So yeah, I completed it in 1989 when I was in Mount Fuji, Japan. So mm-hmm. it became a 13-part adventure. But then, you know, from there on, I, I'll, I'll give some more word on that later on. But no, you know, if you want to start a campaign, I think it's great. I think the first thing that's important is first campaign setting. Choose a campaign setting. Back when I was doing it, it was uh, Greyhawk. That's I used Greyhawk as my campaign setting, world campaign setting. And then eventually I moved on over to uh, the Forgotten Realms because I was, you know, well, let's be realistic. They didn't put too much stuff out for Greyhawk. It almost came to a complete stop. And I said, well, I like some new material. I want some more, you know, more fluff. And so that was what uh, the Forgotten Realms was, and I liked it. Then I took everything over and put it into the Forgotten Realms. So I think that's very important that you choose the campaign setting you're familiar with and that you really like. You know, uh, I don't know. I don't know what what y'all like. For for, for me, sometimes it may be. I'll pick, okay, I want to run this campaign setting and make a story to fit the campaign setting. Other times, I may have a story idea and then pick the campaign setting that best fits that. It So I go back and forth. I guess it depends on what's my spark for this campaign. Is it I want to play around in the Forgotten Realms? I want to play around in Ravenloft? Or is it I want them to have this type of encounter or I want this to be the big bad character that the players take down and then I start constructing from there if it's the I want to use this character then at that point well, where does it make sense this character would be does, would he be better suited in Greyhawk Forgotten Realms Ravenloft or in Oriental Adventures Fit I pick the setting that helps me tell the story I'm looking to tell. Or I could pick the setting first if I just want to play in that uh, world. So I go back right. and forth. Yes, yeah, so you know, like uh, Ravenloft. If I wanted to do a campaign in Ravenloft, I mean, that would take some considerable time. That's considerable time. You really have to know the the setting really well and know all the nuances and everything. So as the players are traveling, if they're allowed to travel outside some of those domains, you know, then you really need to catch on to the the whole area of it. Uh, Another campaign setting that I was really, really interested in, actually there's two of them, was Kingdoms of Calamar, Mm -hmm. which falls under the Dungeons & Dragons name brand. And if you don't know Kingdoms of Calamar, you're really missing out. It's a really great campaign Mm -hmm. setting. I don't know how much you all know about it or not. I actually have the uh, 3.5 books put out by Kenzerco. Right, right. Yeah. Was it Kingdoms of Calamar? Wasn't that an original D&D set? It was an OD Indian, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, it's really old. I get to take a look at that because, as a matter of fact, I can too as well as I'm talking to y'all. But uh, besides Kingdoms of Calamar, I also like the Scarred Lands. And yeah. uh, if, you, if you all have never seen the Scarred Lands... Actually, uh, Kingdoms of Calamar was created in 94 by Kenzerco. Yeah. Wow. And then once uh, Wizards of the Coast announced 3rd th- uh, edition, right. that's when they acquired the D&D license. 
Yeah, that was sad because I don't think it really got a chance to get off the ground. They released uh, a few supplements for it, the box set, a couple of the small little books and all that stuff, which I have. And a great setting, very rich. I, I was, I found it to be very pleasing to read. It, it, it really did a lot for me. And then, and like I said, the Scarred Lands, that's, uh-huh. that's about as close as you can get to a Dark Sun with some horror. I mean, it's horrible. Oh, Scar, that's by Sword and Sorcery, right? That it's right. Yeah, that's White Wolf people. That's why it's good. Yeah, I, yeah, I really enjoyed the Scarred Lands, and the whole premise on the Scarred Lands of why it's called that is basically the gods. And this is kind of like cliche because remember now how the Greek gods had to fight with the Titans, yes. and you know, and all that. Well, this is basically what happened. This one that the gods of the the Scarred Lands are fighting these Titans. The Titans lost, but instead of imprisoning them, they brutally killed them. Like uh, they took one, they ripped them completely in half and threw them on the planet. And so that's what makes the mountain range. They took another Titan, they ripped his heart out, and then chained him to the bottom of the ocean. And so uh, his uh, blood continued to pump out of his chest and, you know, uh, mutating all the monsters that come in touch with him. And I believe it's called the Blood Sea or something like that. So, yeah, the, when you play that game, you'll see a lot of taint and horrible creatures from the remains of the Titans that have been, uh, you know, uh, not really killed, but, you know, imprisoned or uh, powerless on the planet. I so, did, yes. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I did my own version of Ravenloft back in the day, back, uh, way back. It was called, uh, what the hell, I wrote down here, Crow's Peak, I called it. Right. And, the players would because if you players want to play Ravenloft, but you can only be in Ravenloft really at a certain level, I feel. Otherwise, you get slaughtered too easily. But uh, so Crow's Crow's Peak basically was like a lower version of Ravenloft, which just like creepy ghosts and mm-hmm. spirits. And it was a, a like a town at the top of the mountain that the players had to reach. And once they got there, they couldn't leave, and they had to figure out a way how to get out of the mountainous areas. Because every time they left, they just reappeared back into town. And all the all the uh, NPCs were like these pale faced people that wouldn't answer questions and didn't understand what they were saying. I did all these weird things to them like that. Nah, that's cool. I mean, I have no problem. Right. And, and you know, I know y'all are familiar with like uh, other campaign settings like Alquadim, Spelljammer. Oh, I love Spelljammer. Uh, Planescape. Never got yeah. Planescape. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, all these other settings that are out right. there and everything. And, 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 and you know, yeah. and, uh, City State of the Invincible Overlord. Uh, uh, yeah, now, see, that's a unique setting. I like that setting. Yeah. I mean, that it's. Uh, we've talked about it many times on the show, but if you can find the box set, grab it. I have the. So, yeah. I have the. Uh, Invincible Overlord that Mayfair did afterwards. Yeah. I have the City State of the Invincible Overlord that Mayfair did the box set. Yeah, I have the the six boxes. One, two, the six boxes they did. They were real thin for some reason. Uh, there's also a, there's the thin ones where the adventure like adventures in little settings of the world. The main box set was actually a, a, a normal sized campaign setting box set. Right. Okay. And that's the that actually has the introduction written by Gary Gygax. 
Right. And see, and that's the key thing. And now, like, you know, Vince, you brought up that thing on Ravenloft and you did something with it. That's interesting. Uh, you know, I wouldn't recommend to a newbies, and I don't like using that word newbies, but those that are not as experienced as us, that if you want to do a campaign, choose a campaign setting that you're familiar with, you know all the nuances about it, and, and so on. And from there on, once you get that experience under your belt, then go to more of the specialized settings, which Ravenloft, Planescape, all those right. settings are specialized. Right, because with like Ravenloft, the spells are going to work different. So oh, yeah. much that is just standard isn't standard there. Whereas in a Greyhawk, a Forgotten Realms, your magic's going to work the same. There, You don't have to worry about like the forces of the demiplane trying to take over players. You don't have a lot of extra rules that make the setting Ravenloft. The in like Greyhawk or Forgotten Realms, it's more of this is just the history of the world. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know all these mechanical aspects to also make the world. Right. And it's also wonderful when you get a new group of players and you're like, what's Ravenloft? Yeah. I know Will loves that. <laughs> right, Will? No, 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 no. Yeah, you know, you put your hands together and go, moo <laughs> <laughs> No, not really. I mean, like I said, it all varies. And then once you have that campaign setting picked out, uh, what you do is then. Now, this is the best thing. For, I love doing this. Is that you take graph paper and you make a flow chart. Okay. On, 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 yeah, well, the, the whole purpose of the flow chart is to give the give it some direction. Where do you want the players to go? Where do you want them to travel? Now, depending if you want to put adventures in there, like I said, I had a 13-part adventure, Fall from Grace. What I did was then, I dotted in in between all those stuff, adventure modules from first edition. So that while they are traveling, if they get off track, because it is kind of like a sand, sandbox campaign, they might go into B3, they might go into B1, they might go into the Pharaoh series. You see how I worked that out as well? Uh, so you like hooked them in trying to make it one big thing, okay? Yeah, exactly. So overall, by the time they got done with this, they were at least a minimum of 13th, 14th level. And what my whole goal was to try to get them into against the Giants and so on and so on. And like I said, it all depends on how you want to run your campaign. But you want finality. You want finality. And I'll tell you why, because if it keeps on going and going, I think the players get tired of it. I don't know. I, I, I never had a group that got tired of a 13-part adventure, but I heard of, uh, I think it's Frank Menser, and uh, I believe he has an ongoing campaign that has never ended, if I'm correct. Yeah. I think as, as long as there's a point to why these characters are still adventuring, you can get away with that. If it may not be the, the goal they set out at when they first were first-level adventurers is the goal that they achieve when it finally does end, those could be two completely different things. They could achieve their, their first goal they had at level one and then realize, oh, wait, now we have this other goal. So you can keep evolving the story, giving them new things to do. But I think that's the key. Why are they adventuring? Why do they exist basically in this world? What's the point? And also, what about you guys feel about playing these characters? Like you hear people like, oh, I've been playing my wizard for 20 years now. <laughs> what do you think about that? I mean, I know me personally, after 9, 10, 11 sessions playing the same character, I'm like, boring. Right. I, I, I'm with Vince there. I like playing lots of different characters, lots of different archetypes, and 
I want to experiment with different things. The, uh, with my game group, we never play the same game system twice in a row. We'll play our like 10, 12 sessions of one game system. Then we'll go to something completely, totally different. Yeah. We'll, we never really have back-to-back D&D. We'll go, we went from, we started with D&D, we went to Star Wars. From Star Wars, we went back to D&D. From that, we went to uh, Robotech. Then we went to Aces and Eights. Then we went to Pathfinder. Then we went to Deadlands. <laughs> and then we threw in some Marvel superheroes in there. And some Top Secret SI. Yeah, I'm doing the Marvel superheroes. uh Surprise, surprise, play by uh, podcast that's up right now, actually. Yeah. I listened to the first episode. That was it. <laughs> I was a little iffy on the rules. I haven't played it in 20 years. So. Yeah. I kind of like how you played it because you actually had opposed, had saving throws for stuff. Because yeah. that was the problem I had in my game. The, if you play rules as written, all they have to do is hit with their power. There is no save. For a yeah, lot of the stuff. Some, some type of save. It's like ridiculous, some of those powers. Uh, especially when you use the Ultimate Powers book like I did. We didn't. We decided not to. Yeah, very smart. That that was... Fortunately, my player, my players even afterwards said they really had fun with it. So I'm like, okay, I guess I ran a good game. For me, it was like I felt like I could never challenge them. And I think that's something to keep in mind when actually running any campaign is have a challenge for the players that they can actually overcome and it doesn't and never actually have them truly be hopeless yeah you right. you you can beat them down but don't beat them down so much that they're like okay we're going to dead where are we playing next well i know if this marvel is done i'm probably going to be switching over to eden studios uh unisystem oh the one uh they use for like a buffy and uh, angel yeah we're gonna do like a buffy versus angel versus thing so i can't wait to see how these guys react to that <laughs> okay yeah, I have both of those uh, books, but I've never actually played either. So. It's actually a really good system. Okay. I like it a lot. It's very simple, just a D10 system with attribute plus uh, the role or attribute or action plus the role, and it's really simple. And you look on a chart, how many successes, and that's it. It's really See, Now, uh, one thing that you did bring up, and, and I like that, Vince, you brought up a very good question. Buffy the Vampire? Blame Oh. oh, no, no. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, Lord. I hated that show. <laughs> but uh, no, I just, I, it just wasn't my type of show. But anyway, you brought up the question what about those people that played a wizard for 20 years? I don't know. I, I, you know, nah, I'm not into that. Let me tell you what I did during a campaign. And this is another thing on how you develop a campaign and how you get characters from not being bored. Is one, you know how you watch shows like Star Trek The Next Generation or Gilligan's Island or any of these shows where on an episode they concentrate on one character and the yes. whole show's story revolves around that character? Yes. What I did was that I will take these characters, and this is one reason why I believe characters should have a backstory, because you use part of that backstory and then twist and revolve the adventure around a character. Let me just give me a quick example. When I ran this adventure before, I had a guy play a gnome. Uh, he was playing a gnome magic Gnome. user. Gnome, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Believe me, I don't know about gnomes. But uh, anyway, his backstory was that his father was a miner, and uh, he had found a gem. And I think he, I think it's something like the, the the whole story was that the gem made him go insane, and then his father disappeared with the gem. When I looked at this backstory, I said, "You know what? Palace of the Silver Princess, prime example." I said, "This has to deal with a gem." 
you know, so I figured, you know, this is what we'll do. We'll use the story, and, and it revolved around that character, and everyone's trying to help him try and figure out what happened to his father with the gem. So they got to the Palace of the Silver Princess, finally got that adventure done and everything, and then being that it was the wrong gem. It was a false lead, a red herring. But again, they liked it because it revolved around one particular character. And so every once in a while, it'll revolve on everyone, but every once in a while, I throw it into where it affected a, a character of the group, and everyone worked together to ensure that that character's particular twist was solved or you know that you know it, it came to a conclusion that's actually not a bad idea well thanks i'm gonna steal that no i'm serious it, it's just amazing how that works sometime when you twist the adventure to where it actually revolves around someone then they become more personal with their characters and then everyone actually works you know together even more to ensure that that goal is you know solved or whatever you know what i'm saying that's why i like finality you know, once they get the 14th, 15th level, it gets to the point like, is there anything else that we really can do? Yeah, you could kill a god. And they said, nah, let's retire them. Back to first level, let's right. do this again. You know? <laughs> right. The, the, the only reason they should be adventuring at 15th level is if there's actually something they really are passionate about they want to achieve, not, what are we going to do today? I guess going to kill another god. <laughs> what are we going to do today, Brain? Take over the world. Right. Yeah, and, and you want to avoid that because then, you know, the, you know, I don't care what anyone says. When you go up higher in level, it, it gets to become a difficult task to provide challenges to the party. Right. And oh, yeah. yeah, and once you hit that level where the players really don't have a set direction, your campaign's going to devolve rather quickly into st- really wacky stuff the players are going Absolutely. to the players will start doing weird things just to amuse themselves and it's just going to break your game they will mm-hmm. intentionally start trying to break it just because they think it's funny and they need something to do it's kind of like when you have a puppy if you don't keep him occupied he's going to cause chaos same with players there you go that you couldn't have said it any better than that, and that's exactly when you start noticing your players start doing those stupid things. It's time to get these characters get some finality in there. You know, whatever they call it on Mortal Kombat when you kill the guy with a special move. What do they call that? Finality, right? Fatality. Oh, fatality, fatality. Either way, <laughs> it comes to an end. It's over. There is no pause, restart. Retire no. the adventures and move on to another game. Yes. So hopefully I provided some type of assistance those that, you know, want to know about how to do a campaign. You know, I mean, just you got to use the, the flow chart. The flow chart's the best method. Oh, and, you know, another thing is if you choose bad guys, use some creativity. Yeah. Uh, your bad guy is going to be a necromancer. Lame. Well, why don't you go quickly go a little bit more over this flow chart? Because I know people are out there saying flow chart. How does that work? Well, basically what happens is you're going to take a piece of graph paper, you're going to, you're going to put in a square or a circle, and, and you'll put a number in that says 1, the beginning. How, this is where the players are going to meet. This is where the players are going to uh, run into encounter one another. They're going to learn about one another and so on. From there, you take a line, just go down a little bit and then put another circle this goes into the first part of the adventure then you'll do two lines from that and put two circles there what and then this is where you break up the adventures are you going to concentrate on one of the players if that's what you want to do you put his name in that bubble and then the adventure will be revolved around that and then the other bubble is like you know continues on that path that what i will do is i can post a flow chart of how i do the adventures that I do, and then you all get a better understanding of what I'm talking about. Okay. 
yeah, that's the best way. And then, and then you, you see, as as the ventures as the ventures continue down that path, once they learn they need to go somewhere, they'll have red herrings along the way. So if they choose that red herring, go ahead and continue, get that adventure done. And during that adventure, they finally realize, you know what, we're on the wrong path. We're we're, we're going the wrong way. So then they'll go back to the original path and then continue on straight. Hmm. You know, it's no different. I'm certain people understand what I mean by flowcharts, like when you do uh, critical writing, right. or what do they call those classes? Yeah, yeah, uh, creative writing, and I'm what I'm actually envisioning is like in Shadowrun, how you have like a network with nodes. You have your entry node, and then you go off. You hit the first point, then you have several branches, directions you could go. At that point, in your flowchart, that's a choice, and you have like maybe one, two, or three different choices the players can make as they go, and that'll send them off to a different branch. And some of those branches, once they can hit that, could be a dead end. There's nothing, there's no more decisions for them to make that further the story, at which point you just backtrack into your flow chart and go on to, and then they make another choice out of those two things. Right, exactly. Now, one thing that I have, uh, that's one thing I failed to mention, this is one thing that's very important, role-playing. I have a lot of allies. I have a lot of um, what we call. There's a lot of bad guys, and what I did was they become personal with these allies because a lot of these allies you're gonna like. Now, how I did this? There was a game I can't remember. Vince, you might know this. It's one of those um, games that came out of you know Japan. I can't remember the name of it though. Uh, you play this guy, you do all this fighting stuff, but you meet all these allies and they'll join your party, so you can have up to four or five people in your party. And you know how they they, they interact among themselves as part of the uh, part of the game. They interact, and it's kind of funny how they interact. Fantasy. Well, Final Fantasy is a good is a, is, is a good example of the game, but there was another one where there was all sorts of different allies. They were weird. There was some of them were weird looking animals. Some were flying. It was just a whole menagerie of of different allies. They all looked different, different colors, different races, and they all you know did something with the party. But as the game developed and as you went further into the game, well, eventually some of the allies eventually get killed because that's part of the storyline. And then you like you get accustomed to them being around, and all of a sudden they get killed. You know, you you get this emotional response to it. The same thing that I did with my campaign. Eventually, they run into a stone giant that was injured. The stone giant becomes an ally for a while, and eventually, later on in the game, he gets killed by one of the bad guys or an, uh, from one of the allies of the bad guy. And everyone says, "Oh no, we like the guy." You, know, you see what I'm saying? You try to develop a sense of. Uh, of 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 love or you know whatever kind of feelings positive feelings for these allies that you have with the party and then of course then on on the other hand you also have them develop a hatred for the bad guys who is who's creating all the hatred and the reason the stone giant dies is because one of the party members messes up or something you see where i'm coming from on that yeah right that's how you got to develop a campaign. You want the characters to get sucked into it. Right. And it's, yeah. Yeah, and the way to suck them in isn't these giant grand things usually. It's usually something really small, like you killed their friend, the stone giant. It's not, oh, no, you blew up a planet. No, it's, <laughs> it's usually something much smaller that gets the, right. the really gets the buy-in. It doesn't have to be big and grand. It, it could be something as simple as... You kidnapped my cousin. Now I need to free them. Grandfather got kidnapped or something. Right. I mean, yeah. It it it's just it's some. You normally when you get the best player buy-in, it's something minor. Just like you never know when they'll latch on to a random NPC 
And you'll need to make them part of your story because they, for some reason, really care about that specific barkeep. You don't right. care about me. Right. And see, that's the whole point. Now, get, let me give you another example of how I turn things around a little bit. And this, you know, I know I'm going on on this, but here's another example here. And hopefully this is going to help develop people's campaigns. Is this going, uh, to, be, is this going to be a flawless victory? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, no, no, actually, this is a little better now. As a, as a, that was good. I like that. That was pretty good. Well, this is what happens. Anyway, that was pretty good. Flawless victory. And just to let you all know, orcs do have pig faces. But anyway, as I was saying, <laughs> what happens basically is as the characters, by the time they're seventh, oh, what's that? Is it impressive? Oh, that's what I thought that said. <laughs> anyway, as I was saying, I just get to about 7th, uh, 8th level. As they're traveling down, they hear a scream coming from these woods. The woods kind of thick and everything. They run into the woods, and what they do is they find this woman, a dark-skinned woman. She's tied to a stake, and the, uh, you see some lumberjacks or whatever they are fixing to set fire to it. Anyway, uh, the players intervene, and, and you know, the, the lumberjacks tell the players, well, she's a witch, she's disgusting, she's a shape-changer, blah, 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 blah. And as they look at this woman, they see that she has a red hourglass mark on her abdomen. So, you know, players are thinking, well, she's not a witch. They don't detect evil on her and everything else. But, you know, they, they eventually tell the lumberjacks to go away or they'll kill them or pay them and they'll take care of whatever. What it comes down to it is that she's actually a shapeshifter. She does change into a black widow spider. Of course, anyone don't like that. But then what happens is the party gets rewarded by the by the uh, the uh, person that she pays, you know, liege to, to this uh, spider king guy. So, again, they make another ally in the group. However, if they kill her, well, then, then that's probably an ally they will never encounter again, unless I say otherwise. But again, like I said, change it around sometimes. You want the characters to form bonds with some of these these people. Even though they may seem and look evil, they're practically not. Right. And then that's where having a good background for your characters comes in. Because then you have things in their history you could latch on to. Perhaps if they serve some time in an army, they, you couple sessions and they run across someone they served with or exactly. or someone from their village it just happens to be traveling through water deep at the same time they are you could have all kinds of little just random encounters just the, one it makes the world seem a little more real because if really if you think about it if you travel as much as your typical adventurer you're going to come across people you know more so than just in your hometown so yep. that, at that point, you'd be like, oh, yeah, you remember this guy from such and such. And then that sparks up just a little bit. And maybe they really bite on that character. Maybe they're not. But it still just makes their character seem real at the very least. And if they really take an attachment to that character, now you can build stories off that character. Maybe he's in the time that they since the they've last met that that NPC they met. Now has a really bad gambling problem and owes, owes the local thieves guild quite a bit of money. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of kind of things you could suck them into that they're not world changing. They're not giant and grand, but they're just little things that make the world seem realer. And those are usually the things the characters latch on to the most. Yep. So that's what my whole take is on developing a campaign, a long-lasting campaign, and, and, and one that, you know, eventually, like I said, you'll have some, you know, finality to it. Yeah, flawless victory or something. I don't know what you call it, but <laughs> but you know where I'm coming from on this. And so, like I said, that that's my advice. That's my personal advice. That's what I've done for the last 30 years or so, uh, since 1979, when I, when I did my first campaign. 
way back in the day. Yeah, way back in the day. By the way, uh, what was that? <laughs> what is that? Oh, man, fatality again. <laughs> no, you want it again. I brought it back up for you. <laughs> That's funny. But uh, by, by chance, uh, did any of you all pick up the reprints? No. I haven't picked them up yet. I may at some point, but with Gen Con a few weeks away, Gen Con gets my money first. The reprints, it looks like they'll be around because my local game store has quite a few still on the shelf. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm was. i going down today and everything, and I, I'm looking right now. They haven't sold any of the reprints. Mm. Yeah. What are you seeing on your end, uh, Vince? Have you seen anything lately? Have you gone to any stores I, down there? Yeah, I've seen them in my store sitting on the shelf. No one even touched them. I think there's already dust on them by now. Uh, that's sad. Yeah, I think what happened is everyone pre-ordered them that wanted them, and then stores went ahead and ordered more, thinking, well, if I have all these pre-orders, that means all these other people are going to want it as well. When really they overshot their target because everyone that wanted it pre-ordered it, thinking it was going to be super limited. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how this is going to affect everything, but in a way, this this is going to be a slap in the face. Yeah. It, I, I, Amazon. I'm going to buy mine off Amazon when the price drops a little bit more. Don't care. That's all I have to say. Yeah. I mean, really, when it comes to back stock and the older catalog, the safest bet for release is something that Watsy's not going to do at the moment, but that's PDF. You can throw so much out there and make money off of it and not stick your retail uh, partners with physical product that may or may not end up moving. Since it does appeal to a niche market of a niche. Yep. Of a niche. Yeah. It's a niche, niche, niche. It's a real small niche out there and everything, so... Well, well, the good thing is, though, that if there's any books remaining at the end of next week, I will be picking up extras. And if it comes down to it, I have five, six, seven sets, then so be it. Yeah. Well, we're supposed to be giving one away way soon, right? Oh, yes. And that we'll be talking that real soon. Just as soon as I get all my copies and everything, I have to make sure because I can only pick up two sets. And uh, I will pick up the, the other two sets at the end of this week here and everything. And then I will put down, I'll start doing and writing the rules, and then we'll have that all squared away. Cool. And just for those that don't, we're going to have a contest. Cool. Yep. Oh, sounds good to me. And then maybe someone will win, and I'll uh, we'll have a flawless victory. <laughs> oh my god! That's funny. <laughs> All right. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. What are you gonna do? So, what else you have to say? Orcs have pig faces. Yeah? All right, cool. I guess that's going to wrap up the special insert for now. As we're getting goofy and I'm adding sound effects left and right. And here was another one for you. Finish him. <laughs> no bibality? No, actually, you know the one I really like? Come over here. <laughs> oh, Scorpion. Well, that one. Get over here. Scorpion. I don't think I have to get over here. <laughs> No, I don't have that one. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. It's all good. I like it anyway. It's funny. Does he have this one? Scorpion wins. Uh, no. Oh, uh, well. Well, today DM will wins. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Impressive. 
Flawless victory. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Let's go before I start annoying everybody too much. <laughs> keep it original, keep it old school, and keep your flawless victory in hand. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Good night. Take care. Roll for initiative.